Well, good day, everyone, and welcome to this podcast. Uh, I am Jim Hansen. I am on the advisory board for the Golf Week uh, Raider Top Top 100 uh, rating team, uh, and I uh, regularly do these podcasts. I hope uh, if you've been on them before that you've enjoyed them, and, and I think we have one today that I'm certain you're going to enjoy, and I've been really looking forward to doing. Uh, this is, I guess, a combination of a, of a book podcast and a travel b- a podcast because basically we're going to be talking about a book that has that really deals with an incredible, well, a 20-year or more journey that the author, Greg M. Ohlendorf, uh, took uh, around the world playing the top golf courses uh, that have been listed by Golf Week Magazine and Golf Digest. And then beyond that, he's played lots of other courses, uh, all 50 states in the United States and so forth. So uh, we've got a lot to talk about, and I want to get right to it. Greg, welcome to uh, the podcast. Thanks, Jim. Uh, looking forward to uh, to our chat. Well, normally I would begin by asking a book author why they wrote the book. But in your case, I think the first question to ask is, why would you embark on such a long and expensive journey of playing each and every one of the world's top rated golf courses? Yeah, Jim, that's that's a really good way to start. Um, I had no idea I was on this journey. You know, when when you start playing and you start uh, everybody pays attention to the lists and whatever. And when I you know, kind of became a golf week grader, um, you know, you, you know that they're out there. But nobody, I don't think, in their wildest imagination fathoms that they can possibly complete any of the lists. Um, there are very few that honestly have done that. And, you know, I didn't have the connections. Um, you know, I mean, it, there just was no reason to believe that any of this was going to be possible. So I guess that's why it probably took as long as it did. Um, but somewhere along the line, I, I suppose maybe I started to figure out it was possible. But that was not early in the process uh, in any way, shape or form. So uh, in the beginning, it was just uh, going out and enjoying seeing different golf and different architecture, which which I've always enjoyed. Well, we're going to show uh, we're going to have an insert showing the the cover of your book. The book is called Global Golf Travels. It's just been published. Uh, and uh, I'll ask you to talk about its availability and tell us about the cover design and what went into that and what course you chose and why. Sure. Um, you know, it's uh, it was just one of those things that as as I kind of work through it all and, and you get closer to the end, a lot of people start asking about favorite courses and things. And, and I, you know, we can talk about, you know, some some of the list elements, uh, what, you know, later. But uh, the cover photo um, is a photo my wife took at Royal Dornock. Um, Dornock is my favorite course in the world. Um, it's it's just a special, special place. And I had always dreamed of um, of seeing it with the gorse in full bloom, but typically that happens in April or May. And and uh, my wife's school teacher, and so we don't get there in April and May. But one year we were over, and uh, we were down south in in Scotland, and near Loch Lomond, uh, we saw that the gorse was blooming. And I thought, uh oh, maybe the gorse will be blooming in Dornoch because it's so much further north. And so we literally got to Dornoch, and and if you've played at the first couple holes, you really don't see the interior of the golf course, but when we went down the little path after the second green to the third tee, we saw what is the cover of the book. And um, I was, I mean, just paused, blown away by how gorgeous Dornock is um, without the gorse in bloom, with the gorse in bloom, it's just something stunning. So, um, so she did that. Um, my, uh, one of the guys that works for me um, is, is got some really great uh, graphic skills. And so he was able to take that photo. Um, we worked the picture and then he worked the cover. And uh, I thought, I think it really turned out uh, way better than oh. I could expect. Yeah, so. it is, it's beautiful. And I'm going to give you, a, I'm going to have you tell us about the actual publication of the book a little bit later, but I want to get into more of your, more of your, your story. One thing that I, that I'm always interested in, and I seem to talk about with all, everyone I interview on the podcast or anyone I talk to about golf for that matter, is how did your passion for golf and golf courses start and how did it develop to such an extreme that you would take on this sort of challenge and and how in the world literally in this case did you manage to persuade your wife and your family uh, that you weren't some sort of selfish crazy man that wanted to that wanted to go do these things just for himself that that's fair uh that's completely fair um the second chapter of my book is called it's all melissa's fault and she knows it um we met in college um i had played a lot in high school i was uh our medal player on our local high school golf team. We had some success. Um, 
And when I went to college, um, my university, which was a D3 school, uh, the golf coach knew my history and asked if I wanted to play. And, you know, it was it was education first and athletics second. So I thought, why well, maybe we'd try it. And after a few practices and being woken up at six in the morning to fill in for somebody, and I, I forgot I had an anthropology test that day, um, and I passed on going to the golf tournament, which was probably a good good idea. I realized that being a college athlete and trying to pass my pretty rigorous curriculum was not going to um, cohabitate. So um, I basically stopped playing during school. I got involved in a lot of other things at college. When I got home, uh, my local town um, had a really competitive men's league on Tuesday nights, nine holes, uh, 20 two-man teams, and you played 19 round-robin matches every single week uh, from as soon as we could start till as soon as we you know, could play into the fall. And it was super competitive. And um, it was just a lot of fun to get back in the game, but I was playing nine holes basically. Um, although I actually met my, my boss, um, who I ended up working for and have been in the same company for 35 years, through that golf league. So golf has, is all kinds of, of great connections. Um, but, you know, never again, never really kind of got back into it until we started, uh, we were married. We were, we weren't very, uh, weren't very wealthy um, and we hadn't done any real vacationing. And so suddenly Melissa, after about three years of marriage says, we got to go someplace. And so um, she was a Wisconsin girl and had grown up in the conference that uh, Kohler high school was in. And so she had known about the American club and the fact that uh, Pete Dye had opened up Black Wolf Run. And so she said, we'll, we'll spend a night in Milwaukee, a night in a little town called Cedarburg, and then a night at the American club, and I could play Black Wolf Run. Um, that was a big mistake uh, yeah, <laughs> on her part because I saw Dye's architecture. Uh, the original river course was just unbelievable. And I said, wow, this is, this is special. Um, we started traveling, you know, kind of one vacation a year after that, but it was always surrounded by playing someplace. Uh, Harbortown was next. And so, you know, another die creation that was was special. She wanted to go see the Candy Stripe Lighthouse. But she's the first one on the weekend that's got the PGA Tour on. She has followed me all over. She's taken she loves photography, has taken pictures everywhere. Um but uh, so I call her, I, I really, truly call her the greatest golf wife in the world, because without her, this isn't possible. Um, but uh, it is truly all her fault. Um, I'm fascinated by your your early associations with public golf courses. And I, I, I guess I'm biased because that's where I grew up. I grew up in not far from where you grew up. You grew up in suburban Chicago and I grew right. up in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And Chicago is the place we always went to go see ball games and museums and so forth. But I, I was a public golfer, worked at a public golf course all through my teenage teenage years. And I think it's a special experience. It's quite distinct from a club country club experience so you know, how was your growing up playing golf on public courses in the chicago area how was that public golf experience how did that lead to the your particular passion for golf do you think you would have ever developed it to the point where you would spend 20 years traveling around the world playing the top rated courses if you had grown up on a very privileged country club environment rather than on the public courses now maybe i'm making too much about this you need to tell me no, I, I, it's a really interesting thought there. Um, I, I grew up on a, a very simple, you know, nothing special public golf course, but, um, and I, I played there a lot alone. Um, you know, I would, I would be young and, and walk up and, and get uh, paired up with, with some people. I played with a group of Chicago firemen that would come down to our little golf course and they kind of adopted me over the, over the summer. My, my parents owned a funeral home and an ambulance company. So we were the 365, 24 hour by seven day you know, seven days a week kind of people. And we, we didn't do any traveling. We didn't go anywhere. So the only thing I could do was, was wander up to the little golf course. They dropped me off and picked me up sometime later. So I got to meet people from all walks of life. Um, at a very young age, I learned how to interact with, uh, again, much older folks. My family business were very serious businesses. So, you know, I was taking emergency phone calls at a very young age and dispatching an ambulance. You know, I mean, it was that kind of stuff. But I think the, the whole thing about public golf is, you know, I played my course and when I started to get ready to play in high school, I wanted to play all the other public golf courses around us because my other high schools were going to play them. So I was checking off a list back before there was a list and it was the list of the local public golf courses, no top hundreds anywhere. I think, Jim, had I joined, you know, my parents been wealthy enough and we'd have joined a country club, that would have been great. What would you have done? I think you'd have played your club. 
because you had a great course and you would have had instruction and you would have had facilities and whatever. We didn't have a pro in our course. I never took a lesson, still basically had never taken a lesson. I didn't have a driving range. We had a play to, to get better. But um, I think the country club experience would have been very different and likely I would have would have not had anywhere near the desire to see other things because I already had something great if I belonged to a great club. So I'm thrilled I grew up on a public golf course and still have a very fond spot in my heart for public golf. Yeah, I, I, you're, when you tell your story, it, it matches up with mine. It resonates with me so, so strongly. It's a very similar kind of story on my part. I think I certainly aspired, you know, as I grew up and I learned more about golf. I mean, the first golf course in Indiana that I knew about, that I ever associated with a, with a designer was Otter Creek down in Columbus, Indiana, which was Robert Trent Jones Sr. He's the first golf course. And there was the, and the insurance agents tournaments there for juniors. And that was my first exposure. But, and then I had a group of friends. I mean, I played with a lot of adults too, but I had a lot of friends that, and we grew up together playing at this public course. And we started to think about, well, we would love to play, you know, go play a, a really good course somewhere else. I, we, and we had friends that were members. We had one of our buddies that actually went to a country club. And to this day, he's the same age as me. To this day, he regrets that he did that because he doesn't think, I mean, the stories that we tell during our reunions of the, of the shenanigans and things that we did, you know, on public courses, you know, he doesn't have those stories. And so anyway, I, I was, I thought that was an important part of the thing to talk about here. Uh, so how and when did you become a course raider for golf week? Um, I, I started trying to, and I think Oh three, I actually became, I think a raider in Oh four. I met a guy that was one and, um, he was talking about it one day and I didn't have the slightest idea what, what a raider was. I didn't have any idea. I knew the list got created somehow, but I didn't know that there were people that actually did it. I thought the magazines had staff and, you know, editors and columnists that, you know, kind of picked them. Um, so I, I tried to get on and, um, the panel was full. This was back in the day where there were maybe 270 people on the entire panel. So I actually tried to get on a golf digest list and they turned me down because I was a six handicap at the time and they would only take you if you were five or under. And I look back at my card that year and in the 26 iterations of the revision, I was under a under five, 20, or, you know, half the time. And I was over five half the time. So I kind of laughed that I was only going to be valuable to them. If I posted, you know, a bunch of, I could have posted a bunch of fours and gotten on, but um, a year later, um, somebody tipped me off on uh, who the publisher was or, of Golf Week at the time. And I dropped, uh, it was Jim Nugent, and I dropped Jim a note. And um, he passed me back to Brad, Brad Klein, and Brad uh, offered me a chance to be on the panel. So um, it was uh, a wonderful thing, and uh, I've, I've enjoyed it uh, ever since. Did your commitment to this, what turned out to be a pretty long journey of playing all these courses, did it talk about the genesis of that? I mean, I assume it came kind of in stages that it didn't come full blown out of your head that this is what you're going to do. But you had you had goal. You maybe set a, an earlier goal that was just to play, I don't know, 10 courses. And then it just evolved from there. Tell us how this sort of moved from, you know, from maybe a maybe a little idea into the big idea. Yeah, there's there's no question. Like I said, uh, you don't start by thinking you're going to play not only 100, but in our case, 200. Right. We're going to play 100 modern, and 100 classic. And I didn't have any any dream that that was even possible. Um, I started uh, my first two big courses were Riviera and LACC. And um, I can remember walking on those two places feeling so overwhelmed because, again, I grew up playing public golf and I had joined a small club by that point in time. But I certainly wasn't in the in the realm of playing it riv in la um so that was that was interesting but you start working the project and we would kind of plan trips around where maybe there were some courses to play and so um early on um my son and i and my, and my son's a, a, on the panel now uh we built google maps of uh all the places that we thought we might go and so actually those google maps reside now on the raider site uh, because that's that's the genesis of where those came from but we basically look and we were headed someplace. My wife and I were headed someplace. And could I pick a couple up here, pick a couple up there? And, you know, you kind of do that. Um, my nephew got involved in the panel uh, in about 07. And we eventually came up with, a, with something as we were getting further. We came up with an idea of the next five. And the next five wasn't Augusta National, Pine Valley, Cypress Point, Oakmont, Marion. I mean, because that's everybody's next five. But it was where's the next five places that we maybe could go that we could get to legitimately and, you know, kind of start checking them off. 
And it's amazing. Every time we put five names on that list, it seemed like in the next 12 months, we would find a connection to get those five done. And every time a course came off, we added another course. It was like it was ordained, it, it almost eerie at times. So we would we would do that. And then the other big thing that helped in, in getting further along the list than I would have otherwise is Chicago. I've got Midway and O'Hare and Southwest flies out of Midway nonstop, almost anywhere. And we had an odd situation that we were off uh, on a Thursday. So uh, work was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. So we would leave Wednesday night, either by car or by plane after work, never miss a thing. We would play 36 holes someplace on Thursday that we could get to. We could either we could drive about as far as Cleveland going east or we could fly a lot of places. And by Friday morning, we would be back at our desks uh, ready to work. And we walked into many hotel rooms where the bill was already under our door because we got in so late, slept four hours, played 36 and came back. <laughs> we would do that 10, 12 times a summer. That's how you start making a dent. And then eventually you say, well, I'm kind of doing okay. I wonder how many I've played. And you start counting and you start dotting more maps and you start planning trips to those areas and you try to be as efficient as you can because you can't go there six times. And all of a sudden you're a little further along. And then I got the wild idea that I thought I could finish it. So, but this sounds like the lifestyle of the rich and famous to some of us. No. I mean, so, I mean, were you doing this during your summer vacations or you were just in a nice enough business position where you could go take advantage of travel trips and things like that? You know, I mean, the, the car miles weren't bad. I mean, we just put gas in the car and, and two or three of us split a room. It wasn't real expensive. Um, on the flight side, um, you know, we had some status with Southwest. And so, you know, Southwest has been my, my official airline of, of this little travel adventure, I guess. So, you know, and, and a lot of those flights are pretty cheap. So we really didn't spend an insane amount of money. It, at least I don't think we did. Um, trying to do it. And I always, I always basically had somebody to go with. I only did a couple of trips where either my wife wasn't along or my son Cameron or my nephew Clint wasn't along. So we split a lot of the expenses up and things like that and just made it as efficient as we possibly could. Because frankly, I mean, you could spend a tremendous amount of money if, if you were vacationing this whole time. We were doing one thing. We were going there. We were playing golf. We were coming back. This wasn't a sightseeing trip. Now, Without sharing your 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 best secrets, uh, of course, every Raider has uh, always wants to know. Well, how do I get on this course, or how do I get on that course? And and you know, we have some advice to Raiders about how to approach things very professionally. For many years, what I would do is I would fax the club. Uh, of course, fax machines are like dinosaurs <laughs> almost now. Who who uses them? Uh, but I never wanted to do a cold call. You know, I never wanted to just sort of show up or just phone somebody. I wanted to have the groundwork prepared uh, on on my fax letter. I always would have an image of my credentials, my my card mm -hmm. from Golf Week to show what I did. And I always said, well, you know, I would I would love to, I would love to play at your convenience. And these times, these are the days that I could make it. And and if I could play with a member, or if I could play with a member of the of the staff, that would mm -hmm. be great. I always, and I'm not sure all of our Raiders do it quite like that. I mean, I, 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 you know, if we hear that they're not doing it in a professional way, they may not be Raiders for long, but without giving away your best secrets. And of course the gig that you have in terms of, you know, if someone else now shows up and says, well, I'm trying to play all the top 100 courses, you know, a lot of people might say, well, I think Ollendorf has already done that. So we don't need to support you for that reason. So tell us what your, what your best uh, procedures and protocol were. And then if you have any advice for Raiders about how to get on, you know, not the toughest courses, because we know that there are certain courses that, you know, it's just virtually impossible and it doesn't make any sense at all to try to get on as a Raider. Um, but you know, give your best advice to, to that you would like to share with the Raider population as a whole. Sure. Um, I mean, obviously the golf week card, you know, helped. There's, there's no denying that. And, and some of the courses that we would call, you know, if we felt like they were appropriate phone calls, I mean, we weren't calling Cypress Point. Um, but if we thought they were courses that, you know, would, would be amenable, um, you know, we we told them where we played. Uh, we told them we would be happy to, um, you know, host guests or members of their club if they wanted to come back to ours. Um, I was a member of Flossmoor uh, Golf Club in Chicago uh, and joined Prairie Dunes during the middle of all this. So, you know, I, I had some reasonable currency. My nephew was a member of Olympia Fields. Um you know, our pros helped us occasionally, but, but really it was as much of anything as making 
just really good friends. Uh, golfers want to help each other. People like to show off their clubs. Um, it's just an amazing, it's an amazing fraternity out there. And so, you know, when we were doing the next five, as I mentioned, you know, we would casually mention in, in a group because people knew what we were up to. And, you know, where are you going next? Well, here's the ones I'm thinking about next. And out of the blue, somebody would say, you know, my cousin's a member there, or, you know, I've got an office in that city. I wonder if, if one of the executives in town would help. And it's just, people would do things. I mean, some of the toughest ones that we got on, and I can't, I, I probably can't talk about. Sure, sure. I am, yeah, absolutely. But, yeah. but some of the ones you'd think would just be impossible would be in the absolute hardest of hard list were some of the easiest because somebody just was so helpful um, to kind of make it happen. So um, it was just a combination of, of paying attention. Um, people asked us a lot of times because they knew we were traveling, you know, Greg, I'm going to Columbus. Where should I try to play? And and we'd say, well, here's where we've played and here's where some of the better courses are. And, oh, and, and I've got a friend at Muirfield. That's convenient. Um, you know, and it was just, it wasn't even asking a gym in a lot of cases. It was simply just being willing to host back and and just being in conversation with others that were trying to do the same thing or just people who wanted to help. I had a guy uh, in Atlanta um, that that hosted me at one of the, the really hard ones. And I played then his club, which isn't on a list. And he took me through the men's grill and introduced me to everyone because it was one of my last 17 at the Golf Week 200. And he was thrilled that he got me the hard course in Atlanta. Um, but he wanted to tell all his friends of what I had done and that he had he had played a role in me getting one of the courses. He got as much out of it as I did. I was obviously thrilled to death to get the tea time I needed, but I had a wonderful day with a guy who had no reason to help me whatsoever, but for the fact he just wanted to. So sometimes it's it's not a big secret. It's just simply being a good guy. We said we're always going to be great guests. We want to leave the place better than we found it. We said please and thank you to anybody who was there. If it was a policy, if you could tip at the club, we left tips that they would, you know, know that we were there. Not excessive, but we we certainly didn't have the shoe guy do our shoes for nothing. Right. We thanked the pros. We wrote letters back every time. Um, we just tried to be really good guests, and it just it's golfers are great. Like I said, it, it it's amazing how it uh, how it all came together. Do you remember the specific moment? When you decide, I asked earlier about did this commitment come in stages, and you sort of explained that. But did there come? When was the moment that you thought said, "I can do this whole thing. I can do all the golf week courses. I can do all the golf digest courses. I can do all fifty states of the United States." Was there a particular moment that you that that really first coalesced? I uh, yeah, a couple things. Um, I probably was 150 or so of the golf week list before I thought it was really possible. And and there were still some really tough ones left. I mean, it wasn't a foregone conclusion. Um, the 50 states, I think on my 2010 golf week list that I did, I had to do 43 different states. Our list takes you to so many more places than the others do. And so, I mean, to pick up the other seven states, I always, when I was a kid, I remember going to Stuckey's and I'm going to age myself here because <laughs> Stuckey's doesn't mean anything to some of your listeners. But Stuckey's had the 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 you know the vans and the the travel trailers in the parking lot with the map of the United States and people put stickers on them to show where their travel trailer had been and I thought somebody thinks they're going to get their travel trailer to all of the forty eight lower continental states that's amazing who could possibly think in life they'd go to all fifty states and when I got to about forty four or forty five of them. Melissa knew that we were going to the other five states. I mean, that was a foregone conclusion. So that was that. And then as far as the the, the world list, and I actually did the, the golf magazine list. They are, it, everybody kind of considers that. I mean, the world list, if you're going to play a world list, it's a golf magazine. Um, it's just the way it is. And so um, I didn't think about that list at all. I was at 199 of the Golf Week 100 of Modern 100 Classic before somebody asked me, where are you at in the world list? And I said, I have no idea. And it was one of the guys that's finished the world list. And he said, well, count. And I said, all right. So I counted and I looked at three or four different lists and I was between 67 and 70. And I said, I'm a long way. I haven't been to so many of these places. And he said, I didn't say you had to do it tomorrow, but you could start chipping away at it. And, and so I, at 99, 199 of golf week, and then 70 of golf magazines list. And all of a sudden, 
now you start thinking about it. And once I started thinking about it, um, it got it got crazy because um, those the last five years were were pretty intense travel. <laughs> well, let's move into the book. I love how you organize your book's chapters into 18 holes and well, really, and a 19th hole and a post round appendix. Your first hole being entitled in the beginning, hole one. Second hole was, as you said, all of Melissa's fault and she knows it. Hole number three, a course raider in training. Um, chapter four is entitled Our Worldly Adventures Begin. And it covers trips made to Scotland, Ireland, and England in the years 2000 to 2005. So how did you move from the American national stage to the, to the international stage? I want to have several questions to ask you about your international experiences. Yeah, so I always dreamed of going to, to Scotland. I mean, I think if that's not on, if playing the old course isn't on your bucket list, I, you think you've missed it. I mean, it's just ethereal. Um, but um, in the late 90s, my dad uh, contracted Alzheimer's and um, he died when I was 36. And we spent, you know, three and a half years seeing him institutionalized. And he was just one of the most gregarious, outgoing people that helped more people than you could begin to imagine. And it was awful. And my mom, of course, had never traveled. It was her side of the business that was the funeral home and ambulance service. It, it ended up to be fourth generation uh, before we sold it a couple of years ago. And so she never went anywhere. And so Melissa and I finally said, we're going to try the Scotland thing, but we're going to ask mom to come along and take my son along. Cam was 10 at the time. My dad was, when we started planning the trip, was still institutionalized. He actually died in um, January of 2000. And our trip was in the summer of 2000, the first trip to Scotland. So it was it was really poignant that um, dad was no longer here and was such an influence on my life and all things sports, but uh, and many other things, obviously. But my mom then got to finally take a real trip. And so we did the the we went to four of the five regions of Scotland. Uh, we used a travel uh, uh, broker or whatever to do it um, and just had an unbelievable time. And it was so great to see mom be able to get out and enjoy something. We're flying home and we're not off the ground out of Glasgow. And Melissa's already working on the <laughs> Ireland itinerary for the next year. And we used a tour company to do that. And then after that, um, Melissa said, nope, we can do this and we're going to plan all the trips ourselves. And that became as much fun as anything is just trying to figure out how to make them work and, and make the connections and all that. But it was really, really fun. So in the book, I basically insert the six big first uh, GB&I trips um, as sort of a, an aside. Um, I actually became a Raider, and we actually go back two years when we pick up the rest of the book in Chapter 5. But I wanted to tell the six stories of going to Scotland three times, um, Ireland twice, and England once. Uh, and on the 2005 trip, sitting in the middle of the 18th fairway at St. Andrews watching Tiger win, uh, was was just one of those things you've watched every year. You watch the, the, the throng of people come out and Cam and I are literally sitting on the rope, you know, 100 yards away from the 18th green and uh, and seeing, you know, Tiger win a championship. So we had just an epic time on those trips. We saw a ton of stuff, um, did all the driving, um, but killed ourselves uh, about 10 minutes out of the airport the very first time. Melissa and I were at just screaming at each other because we're on the wrong <laughs> side of the road. We've got MapQuest directions. We have no idea where we're going. I'm going to miss my very first tea time at Prestwick. And I mean, it was it was it was a moment, right? But uh, I think anybody who's married knows that we had a moment like that. Jet lagged and and not knowing what we were doing was was something. But all of that, we laughed. We just laugh at hysterically now. Um, and so that's why I kind of put that piece of the puzzle in as early in the book because I think that set up the stage for the rest of the world travel. I, I, I always try to, to not be condescending when I talk to American golfers who have not gone uh, to the UK or Ireland to play. But at the same time, you use the word ethereal in terms of the old course, and I couldn't find a better word. That's a, such an apt word. But and, and and you can't force people <laughs> to go to go yeah. fly across the ocean uh, for lots of reasons. People don't want to do that. But is there really a more important trip, uh, a, a pilgrimage, really, that one can make for a golfer uh, at least once in their life? What do, what do you think a, an American golfer is missing if they do not make a, a trip or two to play the, the Lynx courses of Scotland and England and Ireland? It, it teaches you 
how the game's really intended to be played. It teaches you that it doesn't have to be a manufactured uh, thing with a bunch of waterfalls. It can be a flat piece of property and the wind changes direction and the rain starts to come in and all the crazy things that happen, you know, when you're over there. Um, the caddies are unbelievable. I mean, even if they were out too late at the jigger in the night before, they're still a lot of fun. Um, they teach you shots that you've never thought about playing before. Um, the, the people in the pubs afterward take you in like your your family from decades, especially in Ireland. My gosh, I mean, you were just literally adopted the minute you walk in for a ham and cheese toasty and a Guinness. It's just absolutely the greatest thing you could possibly do as an American golfer. And the thing that everybody says, no one does, but, you know, the first trip, of course, you play all the road courses and it gets really expensive really fast because, you know, it, it's gone up over there. There's no question. I would tell anybody pick some road courses for certain, but then you've got to get off the road and, and get to pit lockery or, or some crazy off the road place like Durness um, north of Dornock. Um, that's a nine holer that you drive 73 miles to and 55 of them are on a one lane road. And it's a nine hole <laughs> course built by three local guys because they had nowhere to play. That is just something you'll never see in America. These great clubs open up their doors for you. You can't do that in America. Um, you know, there are our private clubs here are pretty tough to get on in most cases. And over there, they're more than happy to have you. So it's it's just an entirely different experience and something that if you really believe in this game and, and enjoy it, you got to do. OK, now I, I hadn't uh, planned to ask you this question, but I want to ask a follow up then. And that is, OK, we've 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 made Scotland and Ireland and, and England. You know, that's the first place Americans should travel internationally. What's the second? I mean, the, the golf is now really, as your book says, it's global golf travels. Right. And I've been fortunate. I'm not going to tell you because I I want to hear it with, uh, from a blank. You know, I don't want to bias you one way or the other. But if you had to say, okay, here you made that trip. Now you've got to, you absolutely have to make this. one. What's the second one? So there's a couple answers to that. You know, you can either do the things that are, again, most local to the United States. So you can do Nova Scotia and pick up Cabot and Highland Links. You can go to the Dominican and play, you know, uh, Casa de Campo. You can go to Cabo and, you know, and pick up uh, a couple of them down there, Cabo de Sol and Diamante Dunes, for example. Um, and those are all reasonable next steps and, and easy for Americans to do, um, you know, no real difficulty. The next step beyond that, though, I think is Australia, New Zealand, Tasmania, and King Island. Um, we did that all in one trip, um, 17 days. I think it was 11 or 13 flights, 17 courses. Um, they, people from over there said, you can't do them all on one trip, Greg. I, I, I said, that's not, can't is not in my vocabulary. I can't go twice. I'm going to do them all in one trip. And, and Ben, uh, Ben Class and I, who's another a golf week grader who did all my crazy trips with me, we pulled that one off. Um, but the beauty of that is it's still English speaking. So I could call Australia and make tea times and, and make arrangements and whatever. When it starts to get tough, yes, when it starts to get tough is when, you know, you're in the continent and and picking up, you know, more Fontaine and Oidivus Dunes and Valderrama. That's three languages. Um, if you're going to the Netherlands, you've got another one. Uh, and then if you do the, the Far East and, and we did a trip that was South Korea, Japan, China, Vietnam and Thailand on the same trip. Um, we had five different languages. We had another 11 or 12 flights on seven or nine different airlines. Um, and had some crazy experiences there, uh, all worked beautifully, but now we have a different problem. When they lost our luggage in China because one of our flights was delayed, you know, telling the luggage people uh, that speak nothing but Chinese that they've lost our clubs, and it's not their fault even, was tough, you know, but at two in the morning when they showed up in our hotel, somehow the international, <laughs> international language of please help me with your hands up in the air um, still worked. But, you know, the tougher ones are are those when when all of a sudden the language starts to become an issue. I, I was glad that you answered Australia and Tasmania and King Island, because that is a trip that I've made and I, it would be my second choice as well. Tell the tell the audience, our podcast audience, some of the logistical issues that are involved in some of these trips, starting perhaps with specifically, of course, memorable to me, I have it on my Facebook site, the, the flights from the little Melbourne airport over to King Island onto the runway, <laughs> the runway at King yeah. Island, and then flying from, I'm not sure how, if you made it this way or not, you might have done it the other way, but we flew then from King Island to Barnboul 
in Tasmania. Did, if you made those flights, tell people what kind of flights they are and, and, and some of the adventures that you're bound to have. One of the, um, one of the craziest moments of the whole trip was we had done the Tasmania back and forth to Melbourne and then we were going to do King Island back and forth from Melbourne. And we got on the little plane in Essendon airport and, um, my, my knees and my face are at the seat back in front of me and I'm claustrophobic and Ben's one seat across and up and I'm sitting there and just break out in a sweat. And, um, I didn't go to King Island. I, I literally ran off the plane. Um, wow. it wasn't, uh, Wickham wasn't on my list. And so I didn't miss one of them, but, um, I, they said, what are you doing? I said, I need my clubs. I, I can't fly this plane. Um, it was just, it's, that's not, that was not going to be fun. Um, a month later, those, the four guys from Texas, um, yeah. crash, uh, on one of those little planes. So I'm not telling you don't go see Wickham, but it, they're going to have to fly a bigger plane. For drug, for drug <laughs> well, go on my Facebook page and look up my video. Cause I was sitting right behind the pilot and <laughs> I took a video of the, of the, of taking off from, uh, taking off from, uh, from Cape Wickham and then landing at Barnboogle. And I'm kind of a nervous flyer you know, all the time anyway. Thank God I'm not claustrophobic or not terribly claustrophobic. But yeah, that was uh, that was pretty exciting. But I guess I figured, and you know, I'm not saying I'm a greater adventurer than you because I'm sure that I'm not. But darn it, I was there. And and, yeah. and and what helped it, and maybe you weren't you weren't with the group, but I was with a golf week group the whole trip with. And so the it wasn't really peer pressure, but it was sort of peer confidence. I mean, the fact that I was there with Sue, Sue and Tim Hennessy and others that I had been with a lot of times, you know, if they were going to go by golly, I was going to go, I was going to go too. And, you know, and now I look back on it, I, I think, gosh, that seems kind of crazy, but boy, am I glad I did it. But, but yeah. tell us about the far East. I mean, you must've had, if, I mean, why didn't you have like a Amazon prime film crew with you? I mean, this would have been a terrific, your whole journey would have made a great uh, couple of seasons of travel log, uh, you know, all the problems of traveling and all the adventure. We, um, we laughed about, about that numbers of times saying we had a film crew with us and just listened to us babble as we were, you know, 17 days gone and Ben and I on the road, just telling story after story after story. I had a friend back at my home club say, what are you guys going to talk about after three hours? And I said, when we got home, we were still talking golf. So I mean, it's, <laughs> it's that, but the Far East trip was by far the most difficult. Um, it, it had to go off in the order it had to go off in because you had to follow you know, the geography. I mean, you couldn't go from, you know, South Korea to Thailand back to Japan and you just couldn't do it. So I sort of looked at a map, uh, never really exactly realized where all those countries were, and then started to figure out what it was going to take uh, to do it. Um, you also don't have a bunch of plane choices. There are only one flight in some cases going from where we needed to leave from to where we were going to. One airline, one flight, period, end of sentence. And we were playing every day virtually. Um, and if we'd have missed a flight, like we did miss a flight in Ganzhou, China, um, you know, what do you do? So the beginning of the trip went off great. We, we had no problem getting to South Korea, flew over on Korean Air. What a great airline, just super, super trip. Um, we went to um, Jeju Island to pick up um, nine bridges, came back, flew into Japan, got in super, super late. We did the unbelievable courses in Japan and the in my book, I, I have got John Sabino's 13 points of how you play golf in Japan. John was kind enough to let me let me copy his post. But playing golf in Japan is one of the most you know, unbelievable things you'll ever do, including the crazy bath with a little white towel on your head. It's a picture that I, I almost don't want to describe. But it was great. Um, and then we flew to China so that we could get to Hainan Island. But we we had our plane land in Ganzhou and we had had this fierce headwind and we didn't get there in time. So we were flying international from Japan to China. But then we were going to fly domestic, of course, from China to China, from Ganzhou to Hainan Island. And we missed our flight. And I looked at Ben and I said, how are we going to go to the China Southern ticket counter and possibly explain uh, <laughs> that we need a different flight, not even knowing if there is one? So we're clearing, you know, the huge walks that you go when you go between international and domestic in any airport. We're clearing through. And all of a sudden, I, I see this lady in a red and gold outfit walking toward the line that we were in as we were walking to domestic. And she says, are you Mr. Ollendorf? 
And I said, I certainly am. She said, you are going to miss your flight in perfect English. And I said, we know that. And she said, but here are your tickets. You leave in 90 minutes from gate L9. That's not going to happen at Midway. That's not going to happen at O'Hare. It's not going to happen anywhere. But China Southern Airlines auto rebooked us, picked us out of the crowd, which probably wasn't that, gave us our tickets, told us where to go. And we made the flight to Hainan Island. Our clubs made it at two in the morning, as I mentioned earlier. Um, and it worked unbelievable. Um, so that trip went off absolutely perfectly. We went from there to Ho Chi Minh City. And then we went from Ho Chi Minh City to uh, Thailand, where our host there was a uh, lived in Hong Kong. And he actually flew from Hong Kong to Bangkok to host us at Ahota Lynx, which is, just tells you how great golfers are, because why would anyone do that? Um, I was later able to host him at one of the really hard to get clubs in Chicago through a good friend of mine. Um, so at least I felt I could repay that debt somehow. But the, the Southeast Asia trip took seven or eight months to plan. Um, it was until about a month before that I thought I really had it all working. Um, they were redoing some work at Tokyo Golf Club, Country Club, and it didn't look like we were going to be able to play. And um, we pulled it off and the trip went off without a hitch. And it's just one of the most ep epic things I've ever done in my life to see those five countries and the cultures. Unbelievable. To encourage people to travel like this, I probably shouldn't ask you the next question, but what were the, I mean, did you have any scary moments or really difficult moments that you thought were really going to cause a problem? Did you get ill at any point on any of your travels? You know, it's, it's, it was, it was amazing. Um, never got sick. Um, I got rained off of one course in Minnesota once. I missed a, a round at White Bear Yacht and had to come home and had to go back. Um, we were we pulled off the gate once at Midway uh, heading to Friars Head and um, LaGuardia was jammed up and they wouldn't let us go. So I missed out of all the courses. I had two false starts. Um, we never missed another round in the entire adventure. Wow, that's impossible to believe. Yeah. I want to go back to a couple of your chapters and ask you to talk briefly about one. Uh, a couple of them. Uh, chapter 10, the 10th hole is entitled the greatest member guest ever. Tell us, tell us about that experience. Yeah, it was the greatest member guest ever. And it to this day still holds that distinction. Um, I was a member at Forest Creek in um, Pinehurst and um, I, Clint came down with me and we played a morning practice round, I think on the North course. And in the afternoon we were going to play the South and it happened to be, we were heading to the tee and another couple of gentlemen came up and they joined us and um, they happened to be from New York. And we just hit it off. And so we played uh, 18 holes. With these guys had a couple beers in the course. And afterward, they said, hey, let's let's go to the, you know, go in. Let's have dinner together the whole nine yards. And they started to ask us, you know, where we were from and where we were playing during the round. And they finally said they were from New York. And the one guy was a Garden City member um, mm -hmm. and, and uh, a Meadowbrook member. And um, his partner said, well, what, have, what, what haven't you played in New York. And I said, we've played nothing in New York, I mean, <laughs> completely 100% nothing. Right. And he said, well, where do you want to play? So literally Clint and I out of our mouths said, Shinny, National, Maidstone, the Creek Club, Sabonic, Atlantic, Garden City, Wingfoot, Quaker, Piping Rock, Beth Page. Where would you like me to stop? Right. Because we knew them all, but we played none of them. Yeah. And, and, and my fellow members partner said, none of those are a problem. <laughs> And Clint and I looked at each other and said, we have, we know no one, you know, and it wasn't like we were going to ask these two guys to set us up on those 12 courses, but it encouraged us to take a shot at seeing if we could find some connections. So later that year, um, the, the couple of days before uh, Labor Day, uh, we were going to make a just post Labor Day trip. And one of the, one of the tricks, frankly, is play before Memorial Day and after Labor Day when the clubs aren't as busy. I mean, as, as far as a Raider tip, don't ask to play in July in Long Island. That's just a really bad idea. But um, so Clint started working on a trip and um, one of the big courses out there in Westchester County, um, he had made a connection, but they said um, when we were coming after Labor Day, the greens would be punched. They didn't want us then. And Clint told me, he said, well, we won't be able to get this particular course. And uh, I said, call them back. If they'll let us come the week before, we'll just fly out twice. So we went out and played four courses in Westchester County. I came home, packed my kid off to school. My wife and I did a quick loop around Lake Michigan and played um, Forest Dunes and, and Bay uh, Harbor and Marquette and came back down, literally got in a plane two days later and flew out and played 10 top 100s in um, five days. Oh, my gosh. Um, because we literally found all the connections we needed for most of the clubs I just ran, I rattled off. I did go back uh, to pick up a couple of them later. 
Um, but we absolutely went from nothing to just focusing on it and then saying, well, I wonder if we know somebody here or there. And then suddenly another connection, another connection. And we had this unbelievable set of courses within a small period of time, just because these two guys from New York said, oh, those shouldn't be that hard. My goodness. Well, unbelievable. That's unbelievable. Uh, chapter 15. Uh, no, chapter it's chapter 18 I want to ask about. It's I think it's the tough 13th hole called Lady Gaga or SFGC, San Francisco Golf Club. Now, tell me, you didn't miss the opportunity of going backstage and meeting Lady Gaga in order to play around the golf. Clint and I were doing a trip in, in winter. We were going out to L.A., and I think we were going to play um, Rustic and um, and Bel Air and um, um, one other, Valley Club. And um, he then he was going to fly back. And I had another day that I was off. And I said, well, I'm going to stay out here and play something else. And he said, what are you going to play? I said, I have no idea. But he booked his trip to go home a day earlier, and I booked my trip to come home you know, the following day. So I said, well, gosh, what else do I need to play out here? And San Francisco was the answer to that question. And I had tried to get on San Francisco for years. I had friends that, you know, from Olympic club friends that tried and nobody, just nobody had a connection. But again, once it was on the radar, all of a sudden I stumbled onto a San Francisco connection. So I called Clint up and I said, yeah, sorry, you're going home to see Lady Gaga with your wife, but I'm going to stay and I'm going to play another round. And he said, well, what'd you get? I said, well, I'm going to San Francisco. No, <laughs> I said, yeah, I am. You're kidding me. How are you going to do that? I said, I'm going to get up at six o'clock in the morning, go to LAX, fly to San Francisco, play San Francisco and fly home from there. I said, but you're going to the concert. You probably don't want to go, do you? He missed the concert. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about one more. Oh yeah. Well, finally, I've got to ask you, although I'm reluctant to do so, uh, so envious, um, I'll tell you my, this is how you got on Augusta. Okay. Now I was, I have to tell you my brief Augusta story. Um, you know, you might know that I did Neil Armstrong's biography. I do. It's a great book. Yeah. And, and Neil had a good friend uh, that had been the commissioner of the LPGA for a number of years. And I, his first name's Charlie. And I don't know why I can't remember his, his last name, but Charlie was a, was a friend of Arnold Palmer. Uh, and lots of people in the golf industry. And Charlie's last name will come to me here in a second. So I had a I had a call from Charlie once, and he said, "I have I've got a spot for us to play Augusta, and it's going to be you and Neil and Arnold and me. Mm. And it's March 16th, and I think it was like 2002 or something. Well, you can imagine how I felt about that, you know. Uh, and about a week before that date, and I'd been practicing and really just, you know, everything, putting on concrete in order to get ready. For, yeah, everything. And then Charlie calls me and says, Jim, some tough news. Neil can't make that date, so we're going to have to reschedule. Well, it never, never right. got rescheduled. Right. And so my opportunity to play golf at Augusta, not just with Augusta, but with Palmer <laughs> and with Neil Armstrong, you know, well, it was it was gone. Now, That's how bad. in the world did you eventually get on to Augusta? I mean, you may not want to tell us because everybody's trying to find their way into Augusta. Yeah, I can I can tell part of the story. Um, unfortunately, I've got a friend who uh, there were four of us at the time that we're all trying to complete the golf magazine world hundred. There were four of us at 99. Um, one guy did it. Um, another guy um, was uh, from Australia and uh, he had the, the tea time. He flew to New York playing a couple of rounds and the day before uh, after flying from Melbourne to New York and going to head to Augusta the day before found out that his member couldn't make it. He's never been invited back either. Um, so I've, I've know at least four or five people that have had an invite and it didn't work out which basically told Greg that I was not going to get Augusta National. It just wasn't ever going to happen. So when I was working on the book, the book's working title almost until, well, the very end was 100, 199 ain't bad. Um, so I played 199 of our golf week list, which was near and dear to my heart. And at that time I was at 99 of the world list, um, but 199 ain't bad. And so um, we, in, um, in 2009, a group of guys from Royal Sink Ports and Deal, which is, in, in my opinion, still a very underrated, uh, probably should be top 100 world course, um, that hosted a, a British Open in 1909 and 1920, came to America and they wanted to play what they considered their sister courses, the clubs in America that had hosted either a 1909 major or a 1920 major. 
And my home club, Flossmoor Golf Club, had hosted the 1909 Western Amateur, which Chick Evans won, which at the time was a, a major, and the 1920 PGA. And so they played our course, Olympia Fields, Inverness, Oakland Hills, um, Chicago, and the Country Club. Okay. And so these guys came over. We played matches with them for uh, 36 whole matches, had big dinner afterward. They brought the Kummel, which is the most unbelievably awful tasting liquor you've ever had in your entire <laughs> life. And we had a ball with them. And we set up reciprocity with Sinkports because we had such a great time. So they invited us to come back and play in, in the following year in 2010. Well, 2020 came. And needless to say, there were a lot of reasons that people could not make that trip. Business reasons. You know, people were struggling the whole nine yards and we didn't go. So in 2018, um, one of my friends uh, and I and Ben were over in England, and, and my buddy from Flossmoor had joined Sinkports six, seven years earlier. He was the only guy that had made the trip the second year. And we're out there with one of his buddies that's a Sinkports member, and we said, hey, um, I said, we got to go back. It'll be the 10th anniversary in 2019. We've got to take a group of guys back. And my buddy Kevin said, never happened. Guys won't do it. I said, I'm going to make it my, my goal in life. We're going to do this. So in 19, we did. We went over to play the matches at Sinkports. We took eight guys from here and just had another riot. We picked up Rye, Swinley Forest. Um, Saint, we played Royal St. George's, had the 36 whole day, lunch coat and tie, the whole nine yards. So we're staying in deal, and I wake up the morning of, of uh, Royal St. George's, and I have, a, I have an email from somebody that I know from literally halfway around the world who said, Greg, what are you doing Friday? I may have a spot for you at Augusta National. Oh, gosh. So – it's five in the morning and I'm going, okay, wow. So I'm, I'm texting back and forth with that person at, at literally five in the morning, England time, but it was 12 hours on the other side of the globe. And so we were able to communicate, but the member was in uh, the States and of course sleep. And so they didn't know if the member was going to bring his son or if I could get the spot. And I said, well, here's my problem. I'm in England. I'm supposed to go to the Netherlands to play Royal Hagen to pan with Ben. Um, we've got more courses in England to play. And so I'm going to have to unwind the balance of my trip, rebook it all to find a way to get to Atlanta to Augusta. I played the morning round at St. George's. We had lunch. I still don't know. Um, we go out in the afternoon and we're playing the front nine of St. George's. I'm pushing my trolley instead of pulling it. I drop the front tire into a rabbit hole. Bar hits me where it shouldn't. I fall down to the ground. I'm down for 10 minutes. And they basically take me in because I don't breathe. I'm not breathing real well. And you can figure out why. So I'm sitting in St. George's locker room with ice in my lap and my phone sitting next to me. And one of the no-nos of life is having your phone ring at Royal St. George's. That's not acceptable. My phone rings. And the guy that's there with me from the club says, do you need to take that? And I said, I know the rules. I need to be in the visitor's car park. I'll try to stumble out there and take my call. He said, no, under the circumstances, you can take your call here. And it was the confirmation that I had a tea time for Friday at Augusta National. So I had um, I basically went back to my, my flat and I canceled. And I don't remember exactly the statistics, but I canceled three flights, two hotels, a car, booked a car, booked three flights, had to have clothes shipped from Chicago because, of course, I don't have shorts or anything. We're playing in cool weather. Um, had to have a camera sent down because you can't use your cell phone camera. Um, had to get hotels, had to get another car in the United States. And um, we went out that night with the boys to a pub in in, uh, in England. I bought them all dinner and, and drinks all night long and said, guys, I'm sorry, I've got to go back to the States. And I said, something's come up. And they said, is everything OK? I said, well, I've got to fly to Georgia. And of course, all my buddies knew at that point in time, and they gave me a hard time and said, get the hell out of here um, and, and go to Augusta. So that was pure luck and just the way it worked out. Did the Augusta member know that you were at 199? I mean, was that a factor in, in your he invitation? found out it wasn't a factor. It was okay. it was the person around the world knew, um, but he didn't. And, um, and, and frankly, didn't want to know. That's yeah, right, just right. not part. I mean, that's not, they don't care. 99 <laughs> did not help one iota. They didn't didn't care. Fact, it yeah. probably, it probably would have hurt. Yeah. That been really well known. Yeah. Okay. Now I could, we, we could talk like you and your son do. We could talk for a long, long time, but I want to finish up. We might have to have a part two to this at some point, but I want to say before I let you go, um, that one of the reviewers of your book has written, I think something really illuminating and I'm quoting this, writing about where you have played golf is tricky business. But Greg Ollendorf in his just released book avoids the trap of doing so in a braggadocious manner that could lose the reader. Rather, Greg's book casts a variety of hooks to lure the reader in, including learning about scores of courses worldwide, 
highlighting the most unusual distinctive holes, tips on travel, human interest stories, the art of networking, and so forth. Additionally, this reviewer writes, the sweet spot of Greg's book, however, for me, is that much of it involves family time, which is also how I grew up playing the game. You know, I know your book, what makes your book unique and very special, I think, is, and I want to congratulate you for it, is that personal and the family side of it. Uh, I mean, and, and it's not at all braggadocious. I mean, we can be, most readers are going to be pretty envious of what you've done, but they're not going to just, they're not going to hate you for it. They're going to, they're going to say, boy, I, that's quite an experience. What a lucky man. And, and through you, we have vicariously experienced this journey as well. So, again, congratulations and the memories that you must have. I mean, golf memories are some of my most precious memories. I'm sure they are for you, and especially since the family was involved in most of them. No, it was, um, you know, it wasn't intended to be a, a critique book. You know, this course is better than that course. It's been done. You know, nobody, I don't need to do that. We are as Raiders, you know, we do critique golf courses in essence by putting a score on them after we play them. Um, but there's something compelling about everywhere I played. I've also played over a thousand. Um, I played a lot of courses that aren't worlds or U.S. top 100s. I had great days on, on almost every single one of them. Um, so there's a lot more to it. And then being able to have my wife along in the beginning, my nephew along for a whole bunch, my, my son along uh, for a lot of them was was really what it was all about. So we we found a way to to get a whole lot more out of it than just the 18 holes. Uh, and we saw a lot of other things along the way. So um, I, I really appreciated that comment. But I, I, I want to end, though, because I hear I, I can imagine I hear a lot of pot of a lot of people in the podcast and my and our fellow Raiders yelling at me. You haven't asked him about his favorite courses. Well, I don't. I didn't have to. You mentioned Dornick, but you do. You have the this uh, post round uh, appendix has zillion lists of various interesting kinds. Uh, but you do have a list of, of favorites. Uh, you don't put them any in any particular rank order. But I believe you've got in your favorite golf courses in the world that you name two. You name five, I guess it is total, two in the U.S., two in Scotland, and one in Ireland. Uh, the one in Scotland of the two is Dornock. But you want to tell us what the other, so that we can satisfy our Raiders and want to know what your top courses in the world are? What what are they? Sure. Um, Pine Valley is the best course in the world. Um, when when it comes out and we look at the, the couple decimal places that it's close to the next one, Pine Valley is just the best course in the world. And I think it's an iteration. Um, Cyprus is, is my second favorite, uh, you know, in the United States. And then there's a whole group of others that fall in, but, uh, in Scotland, I'm a, I'm, I'm completely a doorknock affectionado. Uh, and the old course, as I mentioned before, is you, you just have to appreciate it is for what it is, um, and why it still holds up after all these years, the big double greens, it's just epic. And in, in Ireland, um, Royal County down is Royal County down. And when you stand, you know, on the eighth, ninth holes and you're looking to sleep Donard and, and the town and, uh, you know, this little crazy place in Northern Ireland. And, you know, we went up there the first time and went past the guards with the, with the big guns at the, you know, border crossing uh, in 2001, uh, which you don't see anymore today. Um, that left a mark, you know, as to, you know, the troubles and all the things that had gone on in Ireland. So I'll never forget the first trip to Royal County down and, and I've been back a couple of times. It's, it's pretty special. So it's hard to pick the best, but those, those happen to be the ones that uh, that really left the mark. I, I've got to ask you this because it's kind of a pet a pet of mine. In Scotland, there's this. I'm not. It's not even really really a course. It's a homemade something that plays as golf if you want it to. That was that Michael Bamberger wrote about in his classic book to the Lynx Land, and it and, and on his journey in Scotland, he ends up at a place. And I'm I'm sure I'm pronouncing this wrong for the Scots. Achnafrey. A-U-C-H-N-A-F-R-E-E. -E. It's near Creef. Have you ever heard of it? And no. and, and no. if if you had known about it, and I encourage you to read and to read the last chapter of Michael Bamberger's To the Lynxland book, he talks about this place that's not really a golf course, but it but it can be played like a golf course. It's you know, it's just tended by sheep and and it's on private property. I tried to get there once with my wife, and there, it was posted private property. And I had gone to the Creef Club to ask them about where it was at. And, and when I showed them my map, they wouldn't even answer. And, and then uh, this old guy came over to me in Scottish, you know, Scottish accent, said to me, you know, uh, 
nay golf course there. There's no golf course there. And you should, if you want to play, you should just play here. And I said, well, I know this is not really a golf course, but I read about it and I, I'd like mm-hmm. to see what he, what was written about it. And so as I'm leaving the, the clubhouse, he yells to me, says to me, don't get shot. <laughs> well, I go out in the car and it's raining in the parking lot. And my wife says, well, what did they say? And I said, well, the guy said, don't get shot. And she says, we're going back to St. Andrews. Forget it. We're not going to go. Well, I drove to the property and I drove to saw the sign. And my wife says, it's posted. It's private property. And I got out of the car and a pack of dogs started started attacking me. So I ran back in the car because I'm afraid of dogs. And so I've never been there. But if I, you know, the next time I go to Scotland, I'm going to Ochnafree and see you. Tom Doak writes about it in uh, his confidential guide to golf courses. He's got a little bit snippet about it. So I'm surprised you've never heard about it. And now that you, this is the one now you've got to go see and add to your list. You know, Jim, it's great. You know, people <laughs> ask, people ask, what do you do when you're all done? You know, and I say, well, I want to, you know, I want to play my home courses. You know, I want to play the ones I'm paying dues at, right. but um, I always need another, another idea for an adventure. And we try to get to Scotland every year. Um, but for this crazy world we've lived in the last couple, but, uh, yeah. it's always nice to have another one on the radar. There so you go. you've got, I, one now. I, I appreciate that. That's a, that's a tremendous tip. Well, I've Google mapped it to try to zero in on what, and there is something there. Something. I mean, there is something there and whether it's, if you can hit a golf ball on it, then I'm, and then we're up for it. You know, Absolutely. it doesn't, you know. So anyway, well, Greg, it's been terrific getting to know you. I hope that we our paths cross many times in the future. We can certainly do something together uh, on a golf week retreat at some point. But thank you so much for for the podcast and for the book and for sharing your life story with us. And uh, uh, I know you're not done. You're still a very young man. You probably have more journeys and books to write. So appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks, Jim, for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you.